Hello, and welcome to the Sandpaper Lullaby Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Revelation Records. On April 10th, the band Drain releases their debut album entitled California Cursed. They're from Santa Cruz, and they'll melt your face. As they say, Drain is your friend. New releases and reissues coming from Shook Ones of the Great Wet North, World Be Free featuring members of Terror, Strife, Youth of Today, and Chain of Strength, as well as Constant Elevation featuring Vinnie Carana from The Movie Life. You can check it out at revelationrecords.com or revhq.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Sandpaper Lullaby. just started like getting the idea of what the band was going to be and we were just going to try to be as different as possible Mm. like but still really loved hardcore and wanted to you know you know be a part of what we thought was like you know just like Like a resurgence or the next yeah 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 yeah. it was more just like we're we're going to be the next you know bands we're like yeah we're that age now That was our guest on Sandpaper Lullaby this week, Ari Katz. Coming out of New Brunswick, New Jersey, Ari featured in such bands as Enough, Upfront, Zero Zero, Beach Rats, and most notably as lead singer for early 90s hardcore group, Lifetime. At the dawn of the 90s, Ari and Lifetime inherited what was left of the East Coast hardcore scene, which seemed to be at a standstill. Bands which defined the genre during the previous decade, like Youth of Today or Gorilla Biscuits, had either broken up or were soldiering on with a rotating cast of members. Then I decided I wanted to like try singing, and I saw I like really didn't go out for a few months. And then I saw Rob Fish at the Point Pleasant Boardwalk, and I was like, I think I want to sing in the band. And, he, and he's like, and he just like handed me a flyer that Dan Neiman put up in Vintage Vinyl, looking for a singer. We met and we hit it off right away. And he had all these demos that he would record in college. It was sort of like some parts that, or some songs that became Lifetime songs, but it was him singing, and it was back, you know, it was before he really like came into his own. Kind of sounded like Dan O'Mahony. We met, and he came over, and he started playing me his tapes in my bedroom, my mom's, you know, condo. We quickly like, you know, hit it off. Really kind of came up with what we wanted to do, like musically, like just, and it was, you know, simple, but we were like, we wanted mosh parts, mm-hmm. and then we wanted, you know, melodic parts. After rigidly conforming to the mosh-heavy stylings of late 80s New York hardcore, Bands like Lifetime sought to bring a sense of melody and emotion to the tough guy vibe that was permeating around the scene at the time. And it was like, 
lifetime mouthpiece and you know like resurrection and it was cool like looking back didn't realize it then really but like looking back it was kind of a force you know yeah. and, and like yeah. really did between that and um having a place to play at the college yeah. and Middlesex um just perfect Another obstacle found in the East Coast hardcore scene during the 90s was a lack of DIY spaces. Most local venues had closed their doors to hardcore by that point, making a large void for younger punks looking to check out bands not popular enough to play the larger clubs in the area, like City Gardens. Ari Katz and Tracy Bergman found a solution to this predicament in a cavernous rec space found on the campus of Middlesex County College. But the space lacked in acoustics, it made up for by giving stage time to such local acts as Mouthpiece, Resurrection, and Lifetime, as well as smaller national acts like Strife, Integrity, and Fullwell's Fallen, where yours truly had to work the merch table in a dilapidated college gym with a makeshift stage. I went to some of the earlier Middlesex yeah. shows. You know, I caught the kind of tail end of like those shows and then when I started going to college there like you know I was like I want to put on shows like there used to be great shows here and then I started talking to Tracy and then we just started doing shows and the college paid it was like the ridiculous budget yeah. and we would pay bands ridiculously and like charge barely anything at the door mm -hmm. and like it's cool yeah yeah it definitely it takes time to figure out that that was um, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At the time, I was sick of it. Like when yeah. we we sort of got to a point where like we're gonna stop playing with all of our friends' bands that we've always played with. You know, at the time, I was sick of it when it was like when I left. Yeah. But um, just the whole scene here, and I wanted more, I guess. a little old or whatever but like everybody that was in those bands like really like we all loved hardcore hardcore just got so bad like all the band like you yeah. said all the bands just like disappeared or just weren't or, or played too much mm. or, you know and it was just like I remember one of the last shows I put on I think it was I don't even remember who it was I think Super Touch and I don't know, but like every band was just different and like people just weren't interested and it was just like, you know, like that's when like the newer bands really started like filling the void yeah. of like what was kind of just disappearing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Kind of went out with a whimper, New York Hardcore for a minute. Kind yeah, of, kind of mean, sad how it went After the initial breakup of Lifetime in the mid-90s, Katz was jaded and bored. The idea of doing another hardcore band did not appeal to him, so he formed Zero Zero with his now wife Tannis and Lifetime bassist Dave Politis. The group explored new realms of sound inspired by Stereolab and 60s AM radio pop. Little did Ari know he was aligning himself with the next big trend of the downtown New York music scene. 
What ensued was a suburban hardcore kid vaulted into rooms with people like James Murphy of DFA. Definitely when Lifetime was over, I was like, I'm, I'm done paying attention to yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, at least for a while I did. I needed yeah. to, like, explore other things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because... I don't know. Like, I was dedicated to fucking hardcore for so long, like you know. As was I. <laughs> yeah. And so it was like, you know. Yeah, it had it, to be. I got to a point where I was like, I I need to like play some different music or like yeah. check out some other shit. Yeah. But, you know, I think that whole era of New Brunswick is still, again, like, pretty important. Or interesting again, like yeah. maybe the last again, like the last breath of something kind of interesting or cool happening in that area. Would you say that, or was there stuff that happened in, later in the '90s or 2000s that was still uh, interesting or vital? Or when after Lifetime broke up and started doing uh, Zero Zero, like yeah. I really like was immersed in a totally different world. Yeah. Like I stopped paying attention to anything. Yeah. I know from personal experience, like I would kind of walk away from that stuff and if I saw someone I knew who was still like, I'm going to see a hardcore show and I you're an idiot. <laughs> Another thing about that era which maybe we don't admire like we don't admire or whatever is that it seemed to be a, a a period where there was a lot of variety in things. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah. I think like there was still that thing of like a, there was a VFW hall show and like Lifetime could play and then like Garden Variety. You know, like yeah, different yeah. bands could still mesh together. There was still like an under, like a little a legitimate like underground. Yeah. Oh, and for then sure. yeah, and then it just. It kind of went back to where it was in the late 80s, where it was like only certain bands played on this bill and certain bands on that bill. You didn't want to be in either, in any camp. Right, yeah. You know, we, we just wanted to always kind of stand out from what was going on. Dave, uh, Dave Politis and Tannis, um, you know, we, it kind of started a few bands before that, like we were trying to just do something, I guess, indie rock at the time and, you know, like Stereo Lab, things like that, and just like different instruments. And I think it was, start, it started as the Malcontents and that was with Johnny X and Tannis. We, Kind of started it there, and then Dave Politis joined up, and then we kind of like just took it over. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was just basically us three with, you know, definitely people helping us and stuff. We recorded a couple songs. Like, Dave was really good. He kind of set up a studio. He, like, was early, like, figuring out Pro Tools and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And um, he, had a little bit more dough than us and was able to just like um, buy gear and we rented a warehouse space, East Bron no, South Brunswick, and uh, just started writing songs and, and demoing stuff and then Jay Tree was like, okay, we'll put it out. Mm -hmm. Although I think I had to sort of 
sweet talk? Or? Yeah, I had to like, <laughs> yeah, because... Were they just like, what the hell is this? By the late 90s, most people left over from the hardcore scene were experimenting with new sounds, which resulted in a certain amount of underground bands breaking out of the underground, such as Fugazi or Quicksand. Meanwhile, mainstream America became more in tune with harsher sounds coming out of indie and alt-rock. These two camps came to a collision in the absurd and often overfunded New York music scene. Definitely had ideas and like went for it. Like so, um, it was great. Those guys were like blew my mind. Mm -hmm. Like working with them. Right. Yeah. Like I didn't know how to handle it well. I was still like a hardcore kid. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm in this world and it's like drugs and whatever. You know everything. You know like different music. I was getting turned on to like just like. Crazy people, mm. crazy situations. <laughs> it was cool. Yeah. It was, you know, they had this building. I don't really know the story. I'm sure it's documented somewhere, but like this, they were friends with this dude yeah. whose like parents invented the elevator or the yeah. escalator. Yeah. Some shit like that. Yeah. So he had this beautiful building. He was a really great, really nice kid. And they had this beautiful building, and there was like the DFA studio in the basement, and then there was that uh, that director who's kind of big now, I guess. They yeah. Like and there's just crazy like yeah. people around. There's this dude that would like fix old radios or something, you know. He was like, it was wild. Like looking back, it's like it's pretty fucking cool beautiful studio in the basement with like records everywhere and like then there's like film people upstairs and there's always like s something happening you know James was really like talking about all this stuff that he wanted to do and and then all of a sudden he fucking did it all I don't <laughs> think I like believed he was gonna like be able to do everything but he fucking did Success based on underground acclaim is often fragile. While Ari and Zero Zero continue to make music and expand their horizons, labels originally interested in the band were more concerned with financial viability. The fact of the matter is, most of these labels weren't as interested in experimentation for its own sake, but rather experimentation that would result in a boatload of cash. I, I sort of had a little bit of a contentious relationship with those guys. When we did Hello Bastards, um when we were getting ready to do uh, Jersey's Best right mm -hmm. after that, that's when every band was like getting like signed by like huge labels yeah, right. and yeah, like yeah. Uh, like Epitaph and like Fat and all mm -hmm. these. So we were like, why not us? You know, mm -hmm. like, so we were like trying, we started to look at other labels to put that record out on. We actually were supposed to put out Jersey's Best with BYO. Mm -hmm. Like we met with, the Stern Brothers, mm -hmm. like, and it was like a done deal, and we like fit, like, you know, finished recording the record, and it was supposed to come out, it was supposed to come out on J Tree, and then we we're like, we're gonna do it with these guys, uh -huh. so they were mad the way we left, 
uh, because then we broke up and then we, I had to call him back and say, I'm sorry, can you put the record out oh, anyway? Yeah, I was going to say, it didn't come out anymore, <laughs> yeah. And then I had to tell the Stern brothers that we couldn't do it. And, um, but anyway, so then when Zero Zero, we started writing some songs and I think they were kind of interested, but I had to like call and like say like, sorry, mm. will you put this out? Uh, too, and I don't know. We just always had like a. So, so what happened? Like BYO decided they didn't want to do it, or no? We just said, since we're about to break up, we would rather put it on J Tree oh, okay. because at least it'll be with Hello Bastards. So it won't yeah, be I like gotcha. spread yeah, yeah. out all over the place. But anyway, so they agreed to put out Zero Zero, and they hooked us up with James Murphy. They knew James Murphy, and they sent some of our songs, and they agreed to do it. Because it was like right before um, they just blew up, you know. Zero Zero, like we wrote and recorded everything in our studio, and then brought it, once, once all the songs were written and recorded, then we went to New York and they produced it, Tim and James. It was awesome, crazy experience. Like really kind of weird and dark for me, but um, I'm like super lucky, uh, you know, got to work with them. Mm. But we're sort of lost in that whole scene. Cause like, I, I remember when Zero Zero was recording, um, they were starting to put together like, uh, what's that Raptor song? House of Jealous Lovers. Yeah. So they were, you know, I would hear that being like played around and like, you know, I'd get to like hear that. So we, we like wrote a bunch of songs and it's our fault, we kind of fucked up. Like we, we kind of started writing to that scene a little bit more, like mm -hmm. where Zero Zero just kind of like happened. It was just right. three of us hanging out and like, smoking pot and whatever and uh, just fucking around. Once they wanted to, us to demo songs for their new label, you know, we wrote like some, looking back, I still like them, but it was, you know, we were like almost going full disco. <laughs> <laughs> had a plan to meet them after they heard the songs and uh, we went to a bar and I'm all excited and they sit down they're like these songs aren't good <laughs> like this isn't you guys and um, and we kind of blew blew it to be on the um, DFA, DFA yeah. label you know what I mean um, and the Zero Zero doesn't get mentioned in that whole world. Yeah. You know, we're sort of like, happened right before everything happened. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I'm pretty proud of that record. Zero 
Zero's underground roots and need for experimentation clash with the trend-dependent alt-rock oligarchs of the time, a fate that would keep other groups prior to them, like the Laughing Hyenas or the Minutemen, from experiencing mainstream success despite avid underground support. Yet, the secret handshake that is hardcore seems to still keep connected those who went through its ranks, ensuring that people like Ari who grew up in the hardcore scene reconnect with other great creators in hardcore's history. Dave Frank of Revision yeah. died, and he was definitely, you know, I'm sure you, you know, yeah. you know, like, if you didn't love Vision, you're not, at one yeah. point, you're not a... Uh, you're not from New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, um, Dave was a really great guy, and when, when we were in Enough, he was like our mentor, mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, you know, we would hang out with... Uh, Dave all the time he would help anybody like get a leg up in hardcore you know what yeah. I mean he was just like solid total 80s posse yeah. he was just a great guy and he yeah. obviously impacted a lot of lives so he passed and uh, people wanted to you know honor him and raise money if needed and all that kind of stuff which is like one of the nicest things that has happened in hardcore um that people like just throw benefits for yeah. you really yeah. can help people out they're putting this show together um and i believe they asked lifetime and the souls to play mm -hmm. i mean they definitely did lifetime couldn't do it and the souls couldn't do it and then you know all these bands are getting added and they're like you know i'm like ah oh, sucks that we couldn't play and then Pete called me, Steinkoff, and he's like, why don't, he's like, you want to do some, like, covers mm. at, at Dave's thing? And I'm like, what? And uh, he's like, yeah, let's we'll do a bunch of hardcore covers, and, you know, me, Dubs, Brian, and you. And we're like, uh, you know, I'm like, all right. And that was really one of the scariest things I ever had to do. I was play that show and like do like you know some classic hardcore covers yeah, I remember in front of some of the people yeah. that were there for the original yeah, yeah. I versions I of those like, fucking songs before that being like i don't know if you want to watch this like <laughs> if you really want to see me like screw up like, yeah. bad brains i don't know like yeah like, like um but i don't know i like Pete, I love Pete, and he, I don't know, like for some reason I was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. And, um, and we practiced like twice, maybe like an hour total, and, and went out there and, and played like some of my favorite songs. And then I think Keenlin was like, he's like, hey, you know, Brian Baker moved to town, and uh, he wants to start a hardcore band. And like, Whatever. <laughs> and I didn't even know if he moved to town. Yeah. I didn't know anything. A couple months later, Pete calls me. He's like, oh, you want to practice with Brian and, you know, everybody? Mm -hmm. And that's the first time I met uh, Brian was, like, uh, at our first practice.
yeah, it's just, you know, he's been friends with um, the Souls since like the War Tour days, like yeah. when Bad Religion. And, and so he's known those guys for a long time. So he was very like comfortable with those guys and he's a very like comfortable guy. Yeah. He's, you know, open and just like uh, generally friendly. nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, the, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, I remember when I left practice, I was just like, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he already had something with those guys, knew those guys, and um, Dubs is just like great drummer. And, you know, we had an idea, like, we just, we just want to play fast hardcore. Yeah. And so it was like just. Like we just started throwing together stuff, just like a new young band would, you know. Yeah. Just somebody has a, you know, idea on the spot, and then somebody like just the way people used to write songs. Yeah. My life in bands has always been like, I'm doing this for a little bit, then I'm doing this. And mm. I love that Lifetime still plays. I think we're good and we have fun doing it. And like, you know, we have fun hanging out. Like mm. it's not like, um, forced or it's not a forced only for money kind of thing. Mm. You know, we actually like just crack up. So, I mean, what do you, do you have any kind of, uh, theory or secret or something like why do you think you just continue to make music and continue to be creative whether it's lifetime or beat rats mighty lion i don't know it's um it's all i want to do yeah <laughs> <laughs> records like I don't care about all the other shit like I just like I was saying before like that I'm just you know wrote some songs and recorded them yeah, yeah. like put it out like I just love records and I want to have like I want to make as many as I can because mm -hmm. I want them to be mixed in with all the actual good records of the world when Lifetime was before we broke up and Dave and I always used to say, like, two records, that's it. Mm. And I think me and him felt a little different. He was a little smarter than us. Mm. But we really wanted to make, you know, a record that will one day be in the fucking dollar bin in a record store. Yeah. Like, we all just wanted to, like, make something that's always going to just, you know, hopefully people want, but it's just, like, never thought it would be what it turned into you know like all we really want to do is make records and I still feel that way the coolest art project we could make mm. is a record yeah <laughs> so you want your records in a dollar but next to Frampton comes alive in the first Boston record you know if, if it's they're just floating around <laughs> yeah. for eternity it's like that's cool. like I don't need anything more than that
Thanks for listening to our conversation with Ari. Be sure to check out the reissues of Lifetime's albums, Hello Bastards and New Jersey's Best Dancers on J-Tree. And if you want to learn more about Ari's latest band, Beach Rats, get ready for our episode with Brian Baker coming up later in the season. Also, be sure to buy my books at bazillionpoints.com or revhq.com. The show is produced by Elliot Muka. I am Tony Redman, and thanks for listening to Sandpaper Lullaby. Once again, this episode is brought to you by Revelation Records. When I say you say talk at Revelation Records, folks. Established in 1987, Rev are the true independent hardcore specialists. Whether it's the earlier classics from Gorilla Biscuits, Judge, Youth of Today, Bold, Inside Out, Shelter, and others, or the 90s bangers from Texas is the Reason, Far Side, Into Another, Quicksand, and so many more, Rev has covered it. Go to revelationrecords.com and start today. Go to Rev HQ for a deeper dive into all things punk and hardcore and beyond. Rev HQ carries releases from labels such as Dark Ops, Bridge Nine, Equal Vision, Death Wish, and more. Do you wear clothes? Rev has it. Make a change? We hear you. New website in the works. Stay tuned. And as always, thank you for listening to Sandpaper Lullaby. <laughs>